Welcome to the sermon podcast of Exodus Church, located in Belmont, North Carolina. For more information about our church and the many ways you can be involved, please go to our website at theexoduschurch.org or email us at info at theexoduschurch.org. Hey guys, if you'll take your Bible and turn to Exodus 32. Exodus 32 is where we're going to be today. Uh, We're in a series called Prayers for Exodus. Uh, Each week we are... Um, looking at a part of the story of Exodus, and we're finding two things. We're finding something of God's character uh, so that we can pray with greater confidence. And we're distilling that kind of into a a big idea for the day. And today, our prayer focus is that we would learn to rest in God's timing. That we would learn to rest in God's timing. Another way of saying that is that we would learn to wait. Uh, In this series called Prayers for Exodus, we're highlighting a prayer focus from God's word that we want to pray for our church and that we want to pray for one another. And all of chapter 32, this idea of resting in God's timing, gets to this reality of waiting. Just like our prayer request earlier, it gets to the reality of waiting. And I hate to wait. I hate it. Uh, Right now, we're waiting on college scholarship information. Some of us are waiting on tax returns. Some of us are waiting to hear about that contract coming through at work. Uh, Maybe you're waiting to open a present for your birthday, or maybe you know what it's like on Christmas to see all those presents and want to open them, and you've got to wait, and you hate it. We hate waiting. If you like waiting, I don't understand you. Like, we just hate it. There was an article in the New York Times that uh, was about the idea of waiting and how people respond to it, kind of a psychological interpretive article about this. And it told two stories. The first one had to do with the Houston airport. They, they noticed that they were getting a lot of complaints about baggage claim, about people having to wait on their bags. And they did a study and noticed that people were walking for one minute, waiting for an average of seven and people were complaining. So their solution was they moved planes further away. And so people spent, this is not, this is according to New York Times, true. So they spent more time walking and less time waiting. Complaints went to zero. Another story they told, which I found interesting, was elevators. When they were first created, they didn't have anything on the doors. And they noticed that people were complaining about having to wait on an elevator. Their solution They made the door reflective. They put a mirror there. Complaints went to zero. It's really interesting because none of us us like to wait. We hate waiting. I hate waiting. And yet, when I do have to wait, what happens in my life when I have to wait or a timeline's not working the way I want or something's not going the way I think it should, when I have to wait, some things get activated in me. Um, my need for control shifts into overdrive. And if I can't control this circumstance or that circumstance, I'm going to find something I can. So I snap at my kids. I get really hyper-concerned about minor things. I want to rearrange this part of my life because I will create some square footage in my universe where I can declare mine. Or if control's not my thing for that day, I'll try to escape it. I'll binge watch Netflix. I'll run away. I'll try to get out of town. Or maybe I'll run places for comfort like food and drink. But I'm going to do something to deal with this thing going on in my heart 
when my timeline is not working out the way I want. Rather than trusting God with what's going on in my world, I find something to, I find something to trust in rather than him. And the Bible calls this whole process of seeking, constructing, and hoping in something other than the God of the Bible to give me some sense of security, comfort, and control. The Bible calls all of that idolatry. And idolatry is called sin. And every time I do this, every time I go to something other than the God of the Bible for control, for comfort, for security, every time I'm put to shame. Every time. Now today, um, in our study of Exodus, we're going to see how the people of God respond when they have to wait. And we're going to see that played out in this story, just what I described in my own life. And maybe as you're hearing me say some of the things going on in my heart, maybe you're thinking, man, you are a piece of work. You have no idea. Okay, it's worse. But as we look at this passage, my hope is that God would give us grace to look into our hearts. And that as we look into our hearts, we'll run to his grace. Because what we don't need to do is try to fix ourselves here. What we need to do is run to him to find grace to help us in our time of need. Okay? So I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. I'll say a brief prayer and we'll jump in. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people. Behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would uh, help us uh, connect with you in your word, that we would see the realities of our heart, that we would see the realities of your grace. Holy Spirit, would you grant clarity, boldness, and power to your word this morning? Would you preach a better sermon than I've prepared? We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Now I want us to catch this up on the story. The people of God have been delivered from Egypt. They're at the mountain of God, uh, surrounded, surrounded at the top by a cloud of cloud of uh, fire and thunder. They're, they're there looking at a visible, the visible presence of God in the cloud. And every day, six days a week for several chapters, manna has been falling on the ground. They've been picking it up for breakfast as a tangible expression of God's kindness. So they're seeing God's presence. They're feeling God's kindness. 
And chapters 19 through 31 are basically God's people entering into a formal relationship with God. They're entering into covenant. The people agree to God's covenant terms, and Moses has gone back up the mountain to be with God. Well, he's been there for 40 days, 40 days. And over the last 40 days, the people have been waiting. And what we see in this event in chapter 32 is that frustration leads to idolatry, okay? We see that in verse one. It says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, he's been up there 40 days, God's been providing for them every day, God's been visibly present with them every day, and yet they're frustrated. When Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves to Aaron and said, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. It's been 40 days. Where's Moses? They're frustrated. Life's not happening according to their expectation. They're frustrated. Then frustration leads to believing lies, okay? And they believe primarily two. First lie they believe is God has forgotten us. It's been so long. Where's Moses? We don't know what's happened. God's forgotten us. Now, again, God's presence is circling the mountain. God's goodness is falling on the ground. God's forgotten us. Second lie they believe is God hasn't done, for us, done anything for us anyway. Look at verse one. It says, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. What has God done for us anyway? So they believe two lies, that God has forgotten us and that God hasn't done anything for us Anyway, meanwhile, God's presence is circling the mountain. God's goodness is on the ground. Now, it would be very easy for us to mock them from this place, for us to mock them for not seeing God's visible presence and not feeling God's tangible goodness, but so often, so often we do the same. And typically when we're in the middle of this moment like they were, we don't think with our logic. We think with our feelings. And we start to feel things that aren't true. And rather than remind ourselves of what is true, we listen to what we feel. And so often we begin to believe lies. And the frustration leads to believing lies. And believing lies leads to idolatry. And that's what happens in this story. Idols are made. Look at verse 2. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in, your, in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in, the, in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. Now, Aaron's not leading well here. The people came to him and said, hey, make us a God. What Aaron should have said is, man, go eat some manna. You're like hangry or something. Just eat, eat some manna. It's going to be fine. Just go away. But Aaron's like, oh, okay, this is how I should please you. And he, he does exactly what they say. He's not leading. Second thing we need to see is this gold. Now, this is what makes the story so, so difficult. This gold, where they get it? Well, they got it in chapter 14 when they're leaving Egypt. God told them to say to your neighbor, tell your neighbor whatever you want, and your neighbor will give you precious material and gold and silver. This gold was given to them by God as they were leaving Egypt. And they take the gifts of God, 
that, oh, and also the gold in Exodus 25 is supposed to be used for the building of the tabernacle. It had purpose. And they take the gifts of God, meant to be used for the glory of God, and they make a replacement for God. That's what they do here. They take the gifts of God, meant to be used for the glory of God, and they make a replacement for him. That's what they do. And Aaron builds it. In verse four, it says, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool. Now that idea for fashioned it is not like just simply poured it into a mold. Like it's this idea of he worked it. He, he worked hard to make this idol. It's actually the same word used in the second commandment, don't create graven images. He's doing that right here. He builds the idol. He takes the gifts of God meant to be used for the glory of God and makes a replacement for God. And the final piece of this is perhaps the most heinous. Look at verse four. It says, and they said, this is the people. And the people said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now notice what they're doing here. They're polytheists. These are your gods. They're supposed to be the people who worship one God. You'd have no other gods before me. They're saying, these are your gods. And then they ascribe what God had done to this calf that he has built. They take the gifts of God that are used to be, to be used for the glory of God and they make a replacement for God and they begin worshiping this false thing as God. And then Aaron makes it worse. Look at verse five. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it and Aaron made proclamations and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, all caps. That's Yahweh, God's covenant name. He realizes what the people. He realizes what the people are doing, and he says, "Yes, this this is these are not gods. This is God." He takes the gifts of God, meant to be used for the glory of God, and he makes a replacement for God. And it says in verse six, they rose up early the next day, offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink, and rose up to play. Now, can you see the lunacy of this? They've taken gold and they've made a golden calf. I mean, it's a calf. It's not even a rhinoceros or something fierce. It's something from a petting zoo, right? And they make this thing and the people are to bow down to it and ascribe deity to it. They take the gifts of God that are meant to be used for the glory of God and construct a replacement for God. Now, again, it's very easy for us to sit back and look at that and go, man, how silly. And we do it every day. We get frustrated with the way our life is. We start to believe lies. Where's God? What's God done for me? I did everything right. I checked all the boxes. I was obedient, and God didn't give me the life I asked for. And then we start to use God's gifts as replacements for him. Happens to us all the time, every day. We take the gifts of God food, drink. We take the gifts of God, our ability to organize. We take the gifts of God, our strength and our power. We take the gifts of God, our money, that are meant to be used for the glory of God. And we make a replacement for him. All because we get frustrated, all because we believe believe lies, and we do it all the time. Now, when I say things like we do it all the time, there's a temptation for us to go, oh, okay, well, if we do it all the time, It's like speeding. I mean, everybody goes five over. It's not a big deal. Well, idolatry is a big deal. 
and God thinks so too. Idolatry is no small matter. That's the next point we're going to see. Look at verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt. Now that should already make us aware that God's not happy. They have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Do you see the heinous nature of what they're doing here? I mean, if we listed the number of commandments they've broken in this moment. But it's not so much the commandments they've broken as it is the the covenant that they've broken. That word corrupted themselves has to do with marital fidelity. And over in verse 21, where it says, Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have have brought such a great sin upon them? That word great sin is used repeatedly throughout the Old Testament connected to adultery. You see, what God's people have done is that they have broken covenant with God. They were sworn to covenant with God and they have said to him, Where are you? What have you done? We're going to run over here. We're going to make another God that we're going to worship and trust. What adultery is, is when one spouse who is in covenant relationship of marriage is unfaithful and shares with another what should only be shared with their spouse. And that's how the Bible describes idolatry. So God doesn't see the people simply breaking a rule. He sees them breaking a relationship here. They are committing adultery against God. That's how the Bible views idolatry. Idolatry is adultery. It's not a small thing, and we do it every day. We take the gifts of God that are meant to be used for the glory of God, and we make a replacement for God. And then once we make that replacement for God, we run to it, we bow to it, we worship it, we sing and dance, and we get up to play. And the weight we're feeling right now, the awareness of that truth, that we take the gifts of God and that are meant to be used for the glory of God and make a replacement for God, when we feel the weight of that reality, there's a temptation in us. What that weight should do is cause us to run to God and plea for mercy. That's what that weight should do. But so often what that weight does is it makes us run to our goodness. And we try to take our goodness and check all the boxes. And that way, when we come to God, we can say, God, I was bad, but now I'm good. And what that is, is just another way of taking the gifts of God that are meant to be used for the glory of God and making a replacement for him. One's rebellious idolatry, the other's religious idolatry. Both of them are heinous. And when we feel the weight of both of those, what we need to do is not run from God, but run to him. And what we find when we run to him is we find that we have an advocate. We have an advocate. 1 John 2, 1 says, 
It says, if anyone sin, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so when we feel the weight of our sin, when we feel the weight of the reality that we take the gifts of God that are meant to be used for the glory of God and we construct a replacement for him, when we feel the weight of that, we're to run to our advocate. And what we see in the rest of chapter 32, what we see in the rest of chapter 32 is Moses being an advocate for the people and that shadow of Moses being an advocate for the people points us to Jesus, who is our advocate. So when we look at what Moses does, we see what Jesus does. And if we are going to rest in God's timing, we've got to trust our advocate. If we're going to rest in God's timing, we must trust our advocate. Now, Verse 10, God's wrath is burning against the people. He tells Moses, get out of my way so I can destroy them all. And Moses stands before God as our advocate and he pleads for God's mercy in the midst of their sin. Now, now get the timeline here. Moses is meeting with God. The people are down at the base of the mountain (laughs) dancing and playing and worshiping all kinds of false things. And Moses says the following, look at verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord as God, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them with, from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. Now he's saying these things while the people are still sinning. Moses, the advocate for the people, stands before God and pleads for mercy in the midst of their sin. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believed in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. And he loved the world, not while the world was being good. Romans 5, 8. It says, while we were still sinners, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We have an advocate who, in the midst of our sinning, pleads before the throne of grace for us. That's what Moses does here. And that's what Jesus does for us. We have an advocate. If we're going to trust in, we're going to rest in God's timing, we've got to trust our advocate. Second thing, we have an advocate who does not let us continue the way we are. Look at verse 15. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Now what he's doing there is he's saying, you are breaking the covenant we made with God. That's in the breaking of the tablets, he's showing you've broken covenant. And it says Moses' anger burned hot. 
Verse 20, it says, he took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Now, here's what's going on with our advocate here. Moses is lit. Not like in the cool sense today, but like angry, okay? He is angry at sin. And there's this idea going around in our culture that if you love someone, you just kind of let them be who they are. That's not love. If who they are or what they're doing conflicts with what God's word says. It's not loving. And we have an advocate who loves us in our sin and confronts us in our sin at the same time. In John 8, Jesus is confronted with the woman caught in adultery. And he looks at her and he says, neither do I condemn you. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. He says both of those things. He does not say one or the other. He doesn't say, go and, it's, go, he doesn't say I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. Just go and do whatever. He also doesn't say, go and sin no more without the freedom of grace. He says both. Jesus came full of grace and truth. Both. We have an advocate who confronts us in our sin as an expression of love and mercy. It's what Moses does for the people. It's what Jesus does for us. Third thing about our advocate, we have an advocate who will not let us lie to ourselves. There is tremendous ability in our hearts to lie to ourselves when we're in the moment of adultery. I'm sorry, idolatry and adultery. But idolatry is what we're talking about today. There's a tremendous ability that we have to lie to ourselves. And we have an advocate who will not let us do that. This is perhaps my favorite part of this chapter in verses 21 through 24. It says, Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? Aaron, I was up there 40 days. What in the world? Look what Aaron says. And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, they're set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. And as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So I said to them, let any, uh, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. Moses, it's not my fault, Moses. And, and where were you? I mean, it's the people's fault. Look, you know what they did to me, Moses? And Moses, you left. And, and all we did, we just threw it in the fire and out came this cat. Like, it's not my fault. I'm a victim. And we are far more comfortable talking about what has been done to us than what has been done by us. We are far more comfortable talking about that. And Moses, he doesn't even answer him, actually. It's really interesting. He just kind of moves on to the next piece. But we have an advocate who will not let us lie to ourselves. Jesus loves us so much that he will not let us lie to ourselves. He will confront us in our sin and call us to himself. Last thing, we have an advocate who will stand in our place, taking our punishment and paying our debt before a holy God. Look at verse 30. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Now, now think about what he's saying there. There's a mountain. They're at the base of a mountain. The top of the mountain is ringed with fire and thunder and cloud with a God that's angry. 
legitimately angry. And Moses looks at this people who have done legitimate wrong and says, so I'm going to go talk to him. Maybe I can make this right. And Moses goes to God, verse 31. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold, but now if you will forgive their sin. He stands as a mediator between God and man. If you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Now, now this story continues into chapter 33 and 34. Those three chapters are all one block, 32 to 34 in the book of Exodus. It's kind of one story. We're gonna deal with part two next week in chapters 33 and 34. What we see here, though, is that we have an advocate. The people had an advocate in Moses who would stand before God for their sin, and thanks be to God. We have an advocate who stands before God for ours. Jesus Stood, Jesus stood before God to bear the weight of God's wrath. He hung on a cross to bear the punishment that we bore, that we deserve. He bore that punishment for us in our place so that all who place their faith and hope in him might be saved. We have an advocate. We have an advocate who pleads God's mercy for us, even in the midst of our sin. We have an advocate who confronts us in our sin, who won't let us lie to ourselves, and who stands before God to take our punishment for us. And if we're going to learn to rest in God's timing, we've got to trust our advocate. So the most important question you'll answer today is this. Who are you going to trust today? Seems like we've got three options, okay? The first option is we could trust the gods we've constructed in our life. We could trust the way we've taken God's gifts that were meant to be used for God's glory and built a replacement for him. We could trust those things, but we know if we've trusted them long enough, they end in shame. We, we know they won't give us the life we hoped for, but we can trust those. The other option is we can say, no, I'm not gonna trust that, but I am gonna trust my goodness. I'm gonna trust that I've been good enough with the good things I've done to outweigh the bad things I've done. And I'm gonna stand before God and give him my list and say, God, this is why you should accept me because of my list. I've done good stuff. But when we think about that, we know, we know all the bad stuff we've done. And we know that our good is not that impressive. But we could try to trust that. We could try to trust not the gods we've created. We could try to trust the goodness we've created. Both of those end in shame. They're false hope. Or we can trust our advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, the one who stands before God, the one who took our place, dying on the cross for our sin the one who rose victorious over sin in the grave and the one who sits at the right hand of the Father today praying for you all the time and the one who promised that one day he would return to make all things new so that we would spend eternity with him. Who are you gonna trust? Who are you gonna trust? 
When life's not going according to your script, who are you going to trust? My plea is that you would trust Jesus today. Some of you for the first time, some of you are here and you have never trusted Christ at all. You've trusted things that you've created. You've trusted maybe your goodness or your sincerity. You've never bowed the knee to Christ, your advocate. I beg you to bow your knee to him. Some of us, we've trusted Christ before. We've trusted him a thousand times. But there's this thing in us that's so tempted to trust God's we've created or goodness that we've displayed. My, my plea is that we would not trust those things. They end in shame, but that we would trust Christ. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All of it. Trust Christ today with whatever you're waiting on, with whatever you're frustrated by, with whatever you're facing. Trust Christ today. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your kindness to us and your love for us in Jesus. Jesus, thank you that you stand before a holy God in our place, bearing God's wrath, dispensing God's grace and mercy. Thank you that we have hope. We have hope today because you died in our place and you rose in our place and you'll return one day to make all this right. Father, would you, would you comfort us today with that truth? And would you give us grace to trust our advocate, we pray. And we pray all this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.